that my dad has said to me over the years is that you can do anything you want. You can become whoever you want uh, as long as you work hard enough at that thing. Welcome to Bold Breakthroughs. I'm Mark Cook, and this is the second part of a tribute to Kyle Whittingham, the coach of the University of Utah football team. If you haven't listened to the first part of the tribute, it is a few of my insights that also include the previous interview. This part, I will bring you nearly a dozen people in his orbit that give you the life lessons brought to their work life. Enjoy. Welcome to Bold Breakthroughs that unstick work and life. I'm Mark Cook, New York Times bestselling innovator. Each week I offer keynotes that engage thousands, and teams embed me weekly to unstick tech pivots, sales prospects, and ops constraints. We roll up our sleeves in small groups to create breakthroughs on top priorities for each individual, in person or via Zoom. Nine global studies of over two million successes fueled my 4,000 wins at top brands. I've shared rapid innovation in over 50 cities worldwide. Teams create revenue breakthroughs and clients see new profits. Thank you for listening and inspiring your breakthrough today. Question, what did Coach Kyle Whittingham teach you that directly applied to your work or life? Jake Jackson of Gardner Bat, tight end under Kyle Whittingham. As I think about my time at Utah and what I learned that can be applied as being successful in life or successful in work, I think of something that Coach Witt taught all his players and all his coaches is what it takes to be great. Um, and I think there's obviously a lot of different things that make someone great. But on the football field and in, in, in work, frankly, I think you have to be talented, right? You have to have the talent to get there. And once you're in that door, I think everybody's equal. Yeah, some are more talented and can jump higher, run faster than others. But everybody's got that baseline and the ability to do good things on that field. I think the second is is hard work and consistency. Um, there's a lot of workouts and there's not very many games. I think of, of 365 days a year, you're at least there in the facility doing work for 300 of them. And there's only 12 games a year. And I think if you can somehow, whether it's, you know, in your mind or, you know, whatever you need to do to go and attack every single workout, every 5 a.m. run, every 3 p.m. weightlifting session, when you are grinding, you know, with no end in sight, if you can find something within you to make yourself attack that workout and not just survive it, I think those small gains or those small steps to greatness eventually become greatness. Um, whether it's you become a leader, whether it's you become more, you know, talented than others or stronger than others or, you know, disciplined than others. I think those small, simple steps each and every day help you become someone that you wouldn't, you know, you didn't know what's possible years before. And I think lastly is patience. I think every person that walks in those rooms on day one think that they should be on the field. And, you know, whether they should or they shouldn't, Coach Wood always said something. He's always said, the cream will rise to the top. And I spent a lot of time thinking about that. And what makes you rise to the top? And it's not always talent, right? It's not always knowledge. It's not always experience. But it's that combination of those things. And I think time and, you know, patience helps you become what, you know, Coach Wood is talking about. You learn the defense or the offense. You 
learn your strengths, you you, know, you gain that experience, whether it be the game time experience or the reps in practice. And, you know, through those repetitions and through that time, you become great. And so I think, you know, obviously you have to be talented. And I think, but the hard work, the consistency and the patience that you have and not throwing in the towel one year in because you're not getting on the field as much as you want and, you know, transferring because you want something better. You know, the grass isn't always greener on the other side. And those people that can do those things, that is what brings success. And I think I try to apply those, you know, those simple principles in my day-to-day lives to hopefully, you know, I'm new in my career, but to, to find success at the end of the day and, you know, look at every day as a time to learn and not just survive and have the patience to say, you know, I will experience what I need to experience in due time. I just need to have the patience to let those things come and let those things pass. So that's what I've learned. And I hope, I hope I can apply that and be successful and be the best that I can be. Anyways, go Utes. Sean Covey, he's the son of Stephen Covey and brother of Stephen MR. But today we're talking to him because he has two other roles that he doesn't often get to talk about. He's the uncle of Britt Covey, former BYU quarterback at the highest level of collegiate football, one of the great quarterbacks of BYU. And so, Sean, it's it's an unusual request, but I went to your, your place and I heard you talk a lot about Britt Covey and the Utes, and here they go to the Rose Bowl. And so I wanted to get your thoughts on what you saw as a competitor of Utah that translate to work life. Yeah, sure. Well, um, yeah, so Britton's my nephew, my brother Stephen's youngest son, the fastest <laughs> of his kids. And I've really enjoyed watching him and, and uh, supporting him through the years. Um, I don't, you know, having played, having played football and having been around it a lot with uh, several nephews that have played college football, including Britton, um, there's lots of lessons. I mean, um, and I actually remember when I finished playing at BYU, I kind of summarized my key lessons. Um, and one, one of them was just um, how important it is to be, uh, not get too uptight about things. And seriously, because I have a tendency to get too serious. And um, it's one of the things that makes Britain so good. Uh, I remember my brother Stephen said to me, I came home and one of my sons, they were both playing football. He was uh, out doing all of his drills and keeping track of everything. And Britain was in the jacuzzi <laughs> with, a, with a couple of girlfriends, just relaxing. And he thought, I'm not going to ruin that. I'm not going to tell him. You got to get out there and start working because that's what makes him great is, you know, imagine returning punt, right? Scariest thing in the world. It's like bull riding. And um, but he has this mentality of just being calm and cool and not getting too uptight. But I learned that from football. One of the key lessons I've learned is to relax and enjoy. Um, you know, you're playing on national TV, you're on ESPN, your coaches are yelling at you. And just one of the key things, I think it translates well to business and to work in general. You, you just don't get too uptight. No one likes it. It doesn't help anyone. It doesn't help you. You don't think it's clearly, right? And uh, if you can have fun, relax and enjoy, and remember, you know, it's a game of football and it's business is a game as well. That That's one key thing that helped me a ton, of course. Um, another one was just, um, you know, that, 
relationships are everything. And as a quarterback, I remember having good relationships with my front, my offensive line was so important and uh, doing things for them. And, you know, people don't really care how much, you know, until you know how much you care. That old saying is so true. Um, so at work, it's the speed of trust. My brother, Stephen MR wrote the book called the speed of trust. And it's all about how, if you've got high trust on a team, things move really fast. You can communicate really quickly. You don't have to have meetings after the meetings to discuss what really happened, right? Um, you extend trust, you empower people. And so I think the trust levels and the relationships you have um, in your work life are just so, so important, right? And you can't emphasize that enough. And I've been around business long enough to see that the people that thrive and do well in the end get along well with other people. And those who are kind of isolationists, they're not collaborative, they work themselves out of jobs and you see it all the time. And um, so life is a team sport and you've got to be, you've got to be a team player. I'll set you up on the third one. Uh, of all the habits we've got, <laughs> we've got yours for the teenagers, we've got your father's for the highly effective people and many other habits we've got. Is there one that, that is useful, very useful in football, very useful also in business at the same time as it is football? Yeah. I mean, clearly they're all important, right? You can you can take away one. Um, but if I had to pick one, it'd just be probably the second habit, begin with the end in mind. Because um, it's all about planning and, and plotting and blueprinting things before they're created, right? So in football, I just... I learned that typically players make up their minds before the game if they're going to overlook the team or not. There's not much that coaches can do. <laughs> that might have happened to BYU last Saturday. But um, you've got to begin with the end in mind all the time at the start of a week, the start of every practice. I remember we used to spend so much time watching film, right? And that's all preparation. And um, so – you know, in business, I think it's the same thing. I think it's like, you know, what's my end in mind for this strategy? What's my end in mind what kind of relationships I want to build? If I'm a leader, what kind of culture do I want to have? And how, what, what am I doing every day that will um, create that culture? Because you're building a culture all the time, whether it's intentional or not, right? If you're just there and you don't really have an intention around what kind of culture you want to build, it, it'll be built maybe some way you don't want it to be built. So I just think that's, that's key. It's all about goal setting and planning and, um, you know, so I can't uh, emphasize enough the importance of goals. We've, we've been studying goals and working on them on how to set and achieve goals personally. And as a team and as an organization for a long time, as a company at Franklin County, and I've uh, learned a ton about what makes effective goal setting. And it's all about, Narrowing your focus. You can't do seven things at once with excellence. You can do one or maybe two. So narrow your goals down to one or two things. Write them in the right way. Always have a starting line, a finish line, and a deadline um, for everything. And uh, make sure you focus on lead measures and not just lag measures. By lead measures, I mean if you're a salesperson, instead of saying, you know, I need to bring in you know, $50,000 a week through my sales efforts, you say, I need to have 
seven hours of face-to-face meetings every week with clients, right? Figure out what, what are the measures, the things you can do that lead to success after the fact. Um, keep a scoreboard, make it public. Everyone knows if you're winning or losing and then have accountability around on a weekly basis. So these are the keys to beginning with the end in mind and, and good goal setting. Tell me what you thought about when you started to f- see Kyle Whittingham defenses. Uh, I mean, he's a defensive genius, right? I mean, they've always had great defenses and their offenses haven't t- traditionally been as strong, right? But he's all about defense and winning through defense and scoring on defense. Uh, I think he's a phenomenal coach. And I had a nephew, another nephew that uh, played for him on defense up until last year. And uh, he just said it was really hard. <laughs> he said there's a lot of hard hitting. He's more old school. There's a ton of hitting going on and very physical. Um, he's, he's, he was very physical when he played at BYU. I grew up watching him play. And he's carried that on into the Utah program, of course. And I think Utah's become known as the most physical defensive squad in the Pac-12, right? Yeah. Um, this year, I think they have an offense to match it, right? I think Britain's a big part of that. I think he's a spark plug, and he's a great leader. I think Cam Rising has just done phenomenal. I mean, once he came in, things have changed completely. And, uh, you know, talking about being relaxed, uh, Cam Rising is a goof-off. Britain tells me all the time he's – He's hysterical and funny and lighthearted. And so is Britain. <laughs> so together they make a, a great combination and it, it brings excitement and momentum, right? Yeah. Um, just so important in, in football or business. I think as a leader, you've got to, and he's a team captain, you know, and as a leader, you've, you've got to bring enthusiasm and positivity. And, um, you know, like I get in meetings sometimes and it's Monday morning. I'm thinking I'm exhausted. I don't feel like being here and I'm not ready for the week to start. And I'm thinking, okay, I'm the leader. I've got to, I've got to step up and make this a positive meeting and uh, focus on the good. And that, anyway, that's one of the jobs of leadership. I've been to your place, riled up hope and uh, whatever you'd like to share about that long, short, I, we all know what you do for a day job, but I think that's worthy of talking about for a minute. I really was touched by it. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Well, Bridal Up Hope is a foundation my family runs. My daughter, um, we lost her about nine years ago. She suffered from depression, and um, it was really tragic to lose her. And we started this foundation kind of in her memory. And um, because she used to help young girls that were struggling with things by taking them horseback riding. And we just saw great results from this. And so we started this foundation. It's called Bridal Up Hope. And then it's here at Alpine, Utah. We have other locations starting up in Utah. And we have some locations around the world. And basically, we take young women that are struggling with abuse, trauma, depression, and anxiety. And right now, there's a mental health crisis going on. There's a pandemic within the pandemic. And so with young women just feeling good about themselves, they oftentimes don't feel pretty enough, skinny enough, um, good enough, their grades aren't good enough, they don't fit in, they're not getting enough likes, and their, their whole life is on camera, it's on social media, right? And uh, it's causing about one out of every four to five girls is just really in a bad spot. So we take them into this program, they come, uh, they come twice a week, 
for about 14 weeks and they come for a private lesson on a horse. And they get on a horse and the horse is the instructor really. We have a private instructor and a horse and the girl and they learn to work with that horse. They learn how to handle that horse and they learn the habits. We teach the seven habits of highly effective people that are integrated throughout the program. So they're learning life skills, right? So we'll get a girl that um, has just gone into a, a bad place and maybe she's very depressed and won't come out of her room. We get this so often. And the mom will say, will you, will you come to this horseback riding program? And they'll say, yeah, I'll do it for a horse. And they get there and they're looking down and they won't look you in the eye and they've lost confidence and hope completely. And then we get them to go out and get the, catch the horse in the field and put the reins on and then saddle the horse. And after three or four lessons, they're sitting on the horse and riding. And pretty soon they discover that they are in charge and the horses are magnificent animals because they can feel your heartbeat from a distance. They can sense if you're confident or weak. Um, they know where you're looking when you're sitting on them, you know? And so it might be like this, where during the third lesson, the instructor will say, did you feel that to the young lady? And she'll say, feel what? For the first time, the horse knew you were in charge. She goes, yes, I knew that. And did you notice when you look to the left, the horse started going that direction? Well, the horse understands that. And that's called being proactive. And in your life, the same way, once you take charge, other people will feel that too. And it will make a difference in your life. And so that's how we incorporate the habits, right? So we've done hundreds of girls, over a thousand young women have come through the program. It's 14 weeks. Um, it's, we have scholarships available. Everyone, we haven't turned down one person. If you can pay for it, great. If you can't, we have scholarships for you from really generous donors who have scholarship. And three-fourths of the girls have been scholarshiped through the program. It's, it's 14 weeks. And they come out 14 weeks later, and these girls are different people. Uh, they found themselves. They've got more confidence and hope. Our mission is to build hope, confidence, and resilience in young women through equestrian training. And it, it does re remarkable things. And Britain actually came out with his name, likeness, and image a couple of weeks ago and said, I'm, I don't want to use this to advertise for Taco Bell. <laughs> I want to do something that's important to me. And, you know, I think every family has experienced some mental illness um, in your family or extended family or your cousins. And we've had some in our family. And so he wanted to put his likeness and image behind Bridal Up Hope. So he did a big special. And there's going to be another one coming out in the Rose Bowl day um, to talking about Bridal Up Hope and what Britain's done there. So, yeah, this is an important uh, thing to, to do. We, there's just so many young women that are hurting right now. Yeah. Well, I, I've got to say I was deeply touched meeting them, talking to them, hearing their stories. Uh, I, I thought of four things that will never make it into your message or marketing that I wanted to congratulate you on. The first is that those people that you've hired are so engaging and so professional and so good at what they do. Uh, and the volunteers, just an exceptional group of people at that ranch. The second thing I noticed was very quick was the animals are gorgeous and there's, like you say, no kind of mirror besides that 1,600 pound animal that's very anxious and careful about what's going on and they let you know who you are quickly. Uh, the third thing is a little lighter topic. I, I couldn't believe the racing ring was full of chewed up Mercedes Benz. <laughs> 
uh, seats and it was soft and cushiony and clean as can be. And then the stalls looked cleaner and looked like cubes in any office setting. So it was remarkable. Anyway, thank you for taking some time. I know you have to go. Appreciate you, Sean. We love the Coveys. Thank you, Mark. Appreciate you. See ya. All right. Bryn Covey here, uh, wide receiver for the University of Utah. With this question of how does sports relate to the real world? They really do translate. And I've had so many teammates um, go work at places and the, as an employee, they say that it does correlate, you know, from on the field. If I could sum it up, there are a few things that I've really learned from sports that I've carried with me, uh, many things, obviously, but from, especially from Coach Whittingham, and just I've played for many different coaches, each with their own style, and there are a few things that I've taken um, from the good and bad from it, and the first one is the idea of how trusting each other, but, but real, almost quantifiable trust can have such an impact on your options uh, on two things. I'd say the speed at which things get done as well as your options. Jalen Johnson was a corner here at the University of Utah. He's on the Bears now, one of the best corners in the NFL. He was so good. And Coach Scali, our defensive coordinator, trusted him so much that the amount of plays that Coach Scali was able to call almost doubled because he trusted Jalen enough to put him on an island one-on-one -on -one with someone without any help over the top um, because he trusted Jalen that much to do his job and he didn't need an extra guy to help him out. That meant he could use that extra guy in the scheme. And so the playbook just increased. It doubled in size. Same thing on offense. When the offensive coordinator trusts a quarterback and receiver duo enough um, to call plays where it, they're really – requires a lot of trust between the quarterback and receiver that doubles the playbook size. So the amount of options that you have increases when there's a big trust factor that someone will perform well, as well as the speed at which everything gets done, because you don't have to do all these checks on people. And, and uh, just when you trust them and that they'll do their job and that they'll do the right thing, the speed at which everything gets done, the speed at which everything is delegated Coach Witt delegating to his coordinators and then coordinators to position coaches. You can tell when a coach, like when Coach Witt doesn't trust a certain coach because he's has to micromanage a little bit more and it, and it takes a lot longer. But you can tell when he just trusts someone to the max, like Coach Scally. He trusts Coach Scally so much, he doesn't hardly even involve himself in the game planning um, portion at the beginning of the week because he trusts Coach Scali to get the base game plan and it just goes by so much faster. So that's the first thing. Trust just opens up your, your options. Um, the second thing I would say that I've learned from coaches, from good and bad, is that um, you're never going to be liked by everybody and that is not as important as being respected by people. I feel like I'm a people pleaser in general. I feel like most people are. And um, it's hard to not be liked. And especially as a coach, just the reality is you're not going to be liked by more than half your players because they feel like they should be playing or getting the ball more or whatever it is. Um, so you can't concern yourself with that. 
uh, because being respected, I forget who said it, but someone, someone said being respected is a greater compliment than being loved. And I think that that is what I've learned from great coaches is they don't emphasize or they don't place all their efforts in trying to be liked by their players, um, but rather be respected. I think Coach Whittingham is a great example of this. There are a lot of players who have played with Coach Whittingham who don't like him. And uh, that's just the reality of any coach. You could say that about any coach pretty much. Um, there are a lot of players who don't like him, but very rarely will you come across a player who doesn't respect Coach Witt. I would say 99 point whatever percent of players that have played with Coach Witt respect him. And they respect him because he's consistent um, and he embodies everything that he tries to teach. Uh, he is the embodiment of, of what he tries to teach. And I've learned that as a player, too, if you're trying to be a good leader, you know, as a captain on the team, you will not be liked by everybody if you're calling them out for certain things or if you are setting a standard for certain things and not letting things slide. You'll have guys that it rubs the wrong way, um, but they will respect you for it, and that's more important. I've played for coaches who are the opposite. They care about being liked so much that they make these empty promises and they're not consistent and they treat players differently because they want to be liked by them, but then nobody respects them. And when it comes to, when push comes to shove, being liked isn't enough. It's all about being respected. That That's by far more important. Um, so I've learned that a lot. And then the last thing I would say that I've learned is um, just the idea of abundance. Uh, my grandpa used to teach scarcity versus abundance mentalities, right? Like we kind of view the world as a pie and there's only so much to go around. Um, but what I've realized is the world isn't just one pie. There's, there's so much to go around. And I guess an example of this would be in 2019, we had a great defense. Uh, and because we had such a great defense, um, they would stop the offense quickly and the offense would get off the field, which meant there weren't a lot of stats to go around that defense. You know, um, as good as all 11 players were, the individual stats for those players weren't crazy high because, you know, there were so many good players and, and they would stop offenses. And the stats compared to the rest of the Pac-12 weren't as high. But you look at that team now, and so they, a lot of them were worried when they were coming out to go to the NFL like that, you know, scouts wouldn't see that. They only had 20 tackles in the year or whatever. But now on that defense, eight of the 11 are starters in the NFL or, or play can play a lot, which is unheard of. For a college defense and it was just a really cool example of like when you win good things happen for the team but also individually and I think that that is something that I've learned as a receiver at Utah you don't get the ball a ton as compared to the running backs or tight ends and so it can get frustrating but what I've learned is that when the team succeeds you really do get more opportunities individually and so I think that's going to carry into a lot of things that um, I think it's almost, I don't know if it's human nature, or, but it's pretty natural for, you know, when someone in your same position gets a promotion to not be kind of have that dig at you or, or when someone is succeeding in something you're trying um, to have it dig at you. Or if someone fails to have that, you know, internally almost give you some sort of satisfaction. And I just don't want to be like that. I don't want to live like that. I, I've always tried to fight that in myself. And 
and supersede and, and grow from that because I, I, I've never wanted to have those feelings in my heart. But it's hard when you're competing for something. And what I've realized is just that when the team succeeds, individual opportunities skyrocket, even if you can't at the beginning see how that will work. And so I'd say that's what I've learned is the abundance mentality of there is enough to go around for everybody and to not get so caught up in your individual accomplishments that you forget to see that when the team accomplishes something, your individual opportunities will go up, even if it doesn't seem like it at the beginning. Um, and I think that applies to all areas of life. I've, I've never wanted to regret how I feel when someone else is succeeding, even if I'm not, or when that, you know, someone else fails, I don't want to feel a sort of satisfaction with that because I think people can sense that I want people to feel like I want the best for them and that, you know, their success is my success as well. And I think that's something that I have to fight every day, but sports has helped me a lot with. My name is Robbie Keelan, and I worked in the recruiting department for Utah football for a number of years while I was attending the University of Utah. Um, and one thing that I loved about Coach Witt and his leadership style is that even though he leads over 200 people within his organization, um, whenever he would see me, he would always stop and take the time to ask me how I was doing. And he would always remember the details of my life, what I was majoring in, um, you know, what was going on in my life, details of the names of the people in my family. And it really made me feel cared for as an individual and not just feel like I was part of a company um, or part of a program. And that is something that I have tried to implement in my positions of leadership to help other people feel genuinely cared for rather than just a piece of the puzzle um, to help their company or their program gain success. And so I love Coach Witt for that. And I'm so grateful that he has that type of leadership style where he truly cares about individuals rather than just the end goal. Tony Bergstrom, an NFL player that started at the University of Utah. How would you describe your experience in the NFL? I was at the Raiders for four years. I was at DC for almost four years. Mm. So most of my time was in DC and Oakland. Played every position on the O-line, including tight end. I still think the best advice I ever got was uh, my agents, but he was also kind of a trainer. So he always had this policy that he, was, he would treat everybody in the building the same. Whether you were the GM or you were the custodian, he was going to be good to you. And that was always his bit of, bit of advice. And he said, he kind of made this point that I can't tell you how many guys who were started out as equipment managers or just, you know, a, a, a scout or, you know, somewhere else, the, the, the quality control guy who 10, 15 years later, now that I'm an agent, I'm trying to get guys in the league are now, are now uh, directors of player personnel, their assistants to the GM. He's like, I've, I've had more ins with teams, you know, you, you treat everybody well, no matter what, what, where they are in the, in the organization. And it's, it's always gonna, it's always gonna reflect well on you. And it's always gonna come back to, to, uh, to work out well for you in that way. So I think that's, that's one of the biggest business side of the, of the industry that I, that I, I realized and that I, I really took to heart. If you had to point out just one to three actions from Coach Witt that really led to some of your success, what, what would they be? Coach Witt, I mean, he, he'd always talk about you got to have, have talent and you got to have good coaching, but the most important thing you got to have is culture. And he'd always talk about, you know, great teams, players lead. 
that's that's the thing but he he more than anything i think he realized how to build a great culture and it took me years it took me years to figure out what he was doing because you know he's 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 the he's the genius he's the mad scientist behind the scene he's he's down in the basement with his with his with his chemistry set and his tinker toys make, trying to build a culture he was always a guy that believed you could fix any problem with a little more mental toughness. When I first got to the NFL and I thought, man, this is so much easier. But I look back and I realized that that you build culture by having shared struggle. Most people wouldn't have made it at Utah. We were working out and there was a couple of guys screwing around. In fact, I, I don't want to name names. It's kind of messing around. And, and coaches said, all right, that's it. Get your feet going. We're doing up downs. And so we started doing up downs and it was the very beginning of the workout. And we get 10 up down, you know, I'm thinking, okay, we'll do 10. Okay. 10 go by. Okay. We'll do 20, 20 go by. Okay. We're, we're maybe doing 30. Then I'm like, he, then he'll, he's proved his point. We did a full, we did a full hour of up downs. We did just under 400. I think this is Utah. This is what it is. Anyone who's played for him. If I say the process, it immediately, you just go to this, this highlight reel in your mind of coach Witt talking about the process. That was his whole thing. We just got to trust the process. I had, I had an NFL coach who used to always talk about creating your winning routine. The whole point being, you know, what are you going to do on Monday night? Are you running on Monday? Are you doing that? And then what are you doing Tuesday, Wednesday, th- leading up to Sunday? What are you doing on those days to make sure that you're successful? For Coach Witt, it was the process. We would set our goals and we review our goals twice a week. And then we focus on the process. You know, what is it going to take to achieve those goals? And that's what you focused on. You didn't look for the light at the end of the tunnel. So it's not, it's not, you know, looking at that goal of what you want to be and where you want to be all the time, it's focusing on one step in front of the other. Just, you know, what, what do I have to do next? Trust the process. And then if, if we lost, it was, okay, where did we deviate from the process? After a while, and I, I, like I said, I can't remember exactly what Coach Witt called the days. But, and we, we came up with our own names for it. So it became personal to us. So it was still, it was still Get Started Monday. And then it was Bloody Tuesday because that was a full pad day. And then Wednesday, that was supposed to be a little easier, was never was. So that was Bloody Wednesday as well. So we had Bloody Tuesday, Bloody Wednesday, and then Thousand Rep Thursday, which was supposed to be like fine-tuned Thursday, but it was Thousand Rep Thursday because it was just we were going to run as many reps as we could in, in that hour and 45 minutes. We were going to get 1,000 reps in. And then it was Feel Good Friday, Fun Friday, Fast Friday, and then Saturday we'd play. And so that, that was always the process. And we had things in our, in our, in our team rooms. We had, we had these ideals that we had to live to. We had to win the fourth quarter, win the turnover battle, win on defense and play great special teams. Those were the four things that were, that were really big to him. For him, it was always graded on how, how closely we came, how closely we followed the process and how much effort we put into the process. Any success we had at Utah was because of, of coach Witt's process. It was because of the culture he created. Obviously he was, he's, he's, good man. He's a man of faith and everybody's families were always welcome. That was always one of the things I, I appreciated about him. I had a daughter when I was playing and I would bring her around, you know, they all came up to me like, Oh, this is for Olivia. This is for your little girl. That's awesome, man. You get, you got to walk out of here with a win right after she was born. And, and so for coach Witt, it was, it was a lot about family. Everything was about family. And, and, and it's interesting. Cause I go, I I've been around the, the NFL and and a lot of the teams that do really well embrace that as well. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of a weird thing. The teams that were really good, and I, I think of Baltimore, and I was only there for six weeks, but John Harbaugh was exactly that way. And he's obviously been very successful. And he was always big on, I want your families around. On Saturdays, it was bring your kid to work day, every Saturday. 
you know, coach Witt was always big on family. And that was, that was something that, you know, if, if you don't know why you're doing what you're doing, you're never going to be that successful. Families are the best motivator there is. And I think coach Witt realized that. And I think if you're, if you're managing people, I think you realize their best motivator is their family. Tom Hackett. I left college, Mark. I was a different person mentally than I was when I started. What, what do you think actually translated to what your efforts are during the day? The short answer would be with how demanding his program is, it would be impossible for me to tell you three things that I learned immediately from the work from his program that translated into the workforce, because there were probably too many, you know, for me to even, even list. I was able to train my brain to become something pretty powerful. It's really, it's really a weird phenomenon. It's, it's a strange, and it felt really cool. Like it felt really liberating because I, I don't know. I, I just, as a punter, you could have put Usain Bolt as a punt returner and I still would have thought I was, I could beat him. Like he couldn't get to the football because I could put it where he just couldn't get it. Like, and, and that was kind of unique. Um, but I tricked my brain into thinking that I was better than I was almost. And it got me pretty far. Um, and then coach Witt, you know, played a big role in all of that. But Coach Witt's leadership style is really unique as well. It's um, it's pretty old school, you know, if, I, if I'm blunt and transparent about it. His whole thing when it comes to specialists is they do everything the, the rest of the team does, everything. The weight may be different. You know, I may not be bench pressing 350 pounds like some of the linemen, but I was doing the same reps. I was doing the same sets. I was doing the same workouts. When we ran gases, I was running gases. We did everything. And I remember asking him, you know, as I was a junior or senior and I had a lot more confidence, I go, coach, this is silly, isn't it? I mean, like, you know, you make me run 10 gases on a Tuesday and like the most I run is 30 yards for crying out loud. I mean, the reason I play this sport now and not Aussie rules football is because I don't have to run because I hate it. And uh, he goes, Tom, the reason I make you do it is because it's hard. And you'll grow i don't know if mental strength is a thing but you know your your mental power will increase and and it's and because it's hard come game day you should feel better about yourself because you know it's not going to be as hard as what the week provided and so his thing was almost and i agree you know that as hard as it is it it probably was worth it in the end but you know like winter conditioning like yeah we're there we're there with everybody else in january running you know and pushing sleds and like we're doing everything and that's why i think you see like andy phillips i played he was strong like he's a really strong kid and maddie gay mitch Wisnowski, like these punters are strong people um and then you see some players punters kickers around the country and they've like really small arms like literally they've never lifted a weight um and they're probably on a different re regime they, they probably don't you know they probably don't do what utah does and that may be one of the bigger reasons why utah's had so much success at the punting kicking position is because the punters and kickers are expected to do everything and there were many many mornings you know at the crack of dawn where we're in the indoor and it's negative whatever outside um 
And and I remember thinking to myself, like, this is the stupidest thing ever. You know, like, what am I doing? Uh, I could be sleeping. But then you look back on it and you go, ah, it probably taught me how to, how to be a bit stronger, not just physically, but mentally. And it taught me a ton. The, the other thing I'll say is like, there was a turning point. And I think a lot of my success, I have to, re- I have to go back. And so as a freshman, I was a walk-on. I was not a scholarship kid. Uh, I had never played the game of football before. I never played in high school. I never, yeah, I never really, I never put the pads on or a helmet on for game day. And so they told me, you're going to come on as a walk-on if you earn a scholarship, you know, we'll give it to you in a year. And I had a hard time as a freshman. I had no okay, you know, my first two games, I won Pac-12 Special Teams Player of the Week. But as the season went on, my, my numbers and my, my, my punning kind of dwindled. Um, I wasn't, I, I, I didn't have the, the strength to figure out how to do class and football at the same time. I was excited to go to college. I was enjoying the party scene. Um, I was probably drinking one too many Dirty Dr. Peppers and my GPA was poor. And so they didn't give me a scholarship. And I remember sitting there going, my dad's paying out of state tuition. He's given me one year. I had one year. My dad said, you got one year to earn a scholarship at Utah. Otherwise you're either going to have to find a scholarship elsewhere or come home. And I remember sitting in the meeting with coach Witt at the end of the season in 2012 with tears in my eyes going, did I earn a scholarship? And he said, no. And I remember just being like, holy cow. I'd met my then girlfriend, now wife. We were dating. And there was a, t- I went back to Australia over the Christmas of 2012 thinking that like, I may never come back. You know, I gave my girlfriend a hoodie of mine that smelled like me saying, if I don't come back, at least you can have this. And, uh, and I, and, and I remember going back to Australia, sitting down with my dad and he said, just see how the spring goes. And in that spring, they'd brought up an all American Juco punter and I was competing with him. And through the first two weeks, I was losing the battle. I was in, I was the number two punter. And as the spring went on, I remember sitting myself down and going on these drives into the mountains by myself, reflecting and still to this day, when I'm driving by myself, I talk to myself. It's kind of therapeutic to me. I'm sure there are people that kind of drive past me and go, boy, that guy's weird. You know, like he's, he's either singing, but he doesn't look like he's singing. He's talking to himself probably. But I would talk to myself. And I, I just remember thinking to myself like, all right, so for me to be great, what's it going to take? So I told myself, look, Practice goes for about two to three hours, depending on the time of year and depending on the length of the practice. For those two to three hours, I'm going to be psychotic. Like I'm, I'm going to be borderline crazy about what I accomplish in that time. And, and so that spring, I put that into effect and it worked magic because I became so much better in two to three hours a day every day for spring ball goes for like six weeks, I think, or it did. I think it may be shorter now, but it was like a month and a half. And, and by the time it was done, I was like substantially better um, than when it all started. It's amazing advice for a lot of occupations. I think one of the hard things in sales, um, is, for example, is getting on the phone 
you know, there's, there's an old saying, you've got to make 10 calls before 10. And that can apply to someone that has to do a difficult piece of coding in, in tech or someone in operations that can focus on a thousand things, but not the constraint that's causing all of the, the slowdown and such. So there's a lot of application. Uh, but spending extra time in the weight room and working on specific things that'll make me a better punter. And, and I also like, I, I also, so for example, you know, I didn't want to overkick throughout practices. And so what I would do is I would try and limit myself at the start of the week. I'd hit more footballs than I would at the end of the week, closer to games. Uh, but what I would always do, Mark, was I would come towards the end of practice and I'd say, all right, I have one more punt. Um, and no matter how the punt ends up, that's going to be how I end the day. And so there were days where I would punt the football and it wouldn't, it wouldn't work out as I had, had envisioned and it was a bad punt. And I would walk off the practice field and that final punt would be in my bloody head for like 24 hours until I had another chance to go out and punt a football. And, uh, and, and that taught me that come game day, I mean, that's the same thing. You, it's not like you go out on game day and hit a football and go, you know what? That was a bad punt. Can I have that one back? It's like, no, you, you go out there and you get one punt, man. And if it's a bad punt, you got to live with it. And so you better make it good. And it taught me how to almost manipulate my brain into, into tricking myself. So like in practice, I would pretend like I was in a game, you know, because that way I would never take a practice off. But when I was in a game, you know, there's obviously a ton more adrenaline. You've got however many thousand people watching you. I would just pretend like I was in practice. But when I was out there every time, at 14 yards behind the long snapper in front of however many thousand, I was, I, I was dialed. I was focused. Um, and I would concentrate on my breathing and not catching the snap. And, and that was pivotal for me. You've got to understand that there's a work ethic behind it and you've got to fight for everything. Um, and when things weren't going well, he would, he would ask how he could help try and offer advice. And I think that's really powerful too, is when you have somebody that believes in you. 99% of the work a good coach does is with their, with their players on a personal level, not on a football level. So over four years of ending practices with one punt, you know, you become kind of crazy about that one punt. By the time you're done, you're hitting pretty good punts with the final ball in practice more often than not as I look back on it, you know, if I didn't go through that, I, I don't know if I would have gotten to where I, where I ended up. Um, and I think that's also important for people that are aspiring. My dad did it that way. And so maybe that's why I responded well to early criticism and stress. I, I don't know, but um, my dad was in the business world. He was in the banking industry and he climbed his way from uh, kind of being a, a nobody intern, you know, as a young man to the CEO of a couple different pretty big companies. And so, but he said, yeah, like, and, and dad's been fired a couple of times. We moved to Japan. Dad was with Citibank at the time and two years into the whole thing, he got fired and he could have easily packed us all up and went home. 
but instead he stuck it out, found a job with a Japanese bank. Uh, and the guy that hired him catapulted dad, you know, into, uh, into the leader, the business leader that he became. I responded to that, that controversy as a freshman following my freshman season better than I, I think I should have the next three years and win the silverware that I was able to win. And so Carl Whittingham played a big role in that. And, and this is like every player responds differently and yeah. they're all unique and they come from different walks of life, different corners of the globe. They all have different attributes, skill sets. And for a person like Carl Whittingham or Kalani Sitake, I, I truly believe that they walk into a room filled with people and they, they have a better understanding immediately on how certain people respond, what their characteristics are. And I think that's like, I mean, I, that's crazy to me that, that there are people out there that have that skill. Uh, the ability to read people um, is special. And that has, like, the last year, I've just read and read and read about leadership styles. And his development from 2012 to where he is now is, has been uh, pretty powerful to, to watch because he's transformed into, into a better human and somebody that is not so fixated on work. And I think that's that's why you're seeing this team play with the sort of character that they played with this year. They're like strong, both physically and mentally. And that's why they're as good as they are because pressure doesn't affect them like it should. They're not only talented athletically, but, but are also mentally stable and can handle, you know, what college football and high profile sport brings. And Carl Whittingham, he's a magician at that. He's really good. He's savvy. And uh, I don't think he gets enough credit for it. I appreciate you doing this. I'm really grateful. Of course, dude. And uh, we'll talk soon. Jason Whittingham. Hey, Mark. Thanks for catching me outside the office today. It's good to connect with you for a few minutes and talk about some of the, some of the lessons I learned in uh, college and high school football that I feel have translated well to help me professionally in my career. Um, the first one being the haze never in the barn. That's one thing I think my uncle Kyle coined that, so it's probably trademarked at this point. But um, what he means by that, and what I've you know what I've taken away from that is that no matter what, how much you feel like you've done up to this point, no matter what what accomplishments you've you've uh, experienced up to this point, it's never enough, and there's there's always room to grow and, and get better. Um, so that one for me has struck hard, just because I feel like in my personal career, you know, I've hit milestones, I've hit achievements, um, I've taken on challenges, but I feel there's always you know, more room to push myself to grow and succeed. And, uh, and the second thing would probably be that um, someone else always wants your spot. Someone else will always be willing to work harder than you, get up earlier than you, train harder than you to, to earn your spot on whatever role or team you're, you're on right now. So that for me just means that even in my current position at a software sales company, I have to always continue looking at how I can get better and not be six, uh, complacent with the success I've seen up to this point because someone else out there is always going to be hungrier and wanting wanting that position um, and so that just keeps the the motor driving every day day in and day out um, to get better and succeed um, and then the third thing I would say is uh, trust your process uh, or the process whatever one you prefer if you have your own process that you've built and proven um, that's generated those results day in and day out then stick to it even when things get 
kind of up and down and you're not always seeing that success, it's important to stick to what you know works. Um, and if someone's already found that, try and replicate that process and figure out what works for you. But one thing that I've learned in my college career as well as professionally is if you trust the process and stick to it, the results will always come. And you may not see them immediately or consistently every single day, but those results will come over time if you're consistent with your effort and your process. I'm with Brady Whittingham, the brother of Kyle Whittingham. Do you have a few of the top lessons that translate from that experience in that family to your work life to help you create breakthroughs? I mean, just to get right into it, one thing that my dad always was, was he was consistent uh, and, and he, there were clear expectations. You, you always just kind of knew when you woke up in the morning, what his, what he was going to do, his uh, responsibilities that he, that he had, he didn't deviate very much from the tasks of getting them done. He was very consistent. And, you know, if you left the house and there was, uh, you know, from my younger years, we had a swimming pool in the backyard in Provo. If you were expected to vacuum the pool, you knew it. He didn't come home and say, hey, did you back in the pool? And he didn't tell you. I mean, you knew that uh, that was your job for the day. And and it was clear. Um, I don't know how much more to go into that other than, you know, in Kyle's in Kyle's world. You know, I've been on a number of road trips with the team. And uh, actually, I see this less at, at home because I don't spend as much time, you know, up there hours before the game. But when you travel with the team he's extremely consistent and the expectations are very clear the, the hours and minutes are counted backward from kickoff and it's consistent every time, no matter where they're playing, they take the kickoff time and they move backward all the way to the point where, you know, I, they can't get right to the minute, probably on the, on the takeoff on the airplane, but they come pretty close to it. Um, and, you know, if they say that the plane is wheels up at three 30, that's the expectation that he set and it's constant. And if that's, you know, 27 hours before kickoff, then it's 27 hours before kickoff. And, and that time might change next week based on the kickoff time that they're assigned. If you show up at, at the airport and you're supposed to be there at 320 and you get there at 320, you're late. So that's, you know, he is down to the minute. If they're, if you look at the, they always had they had the the uh, team and the staff little cards every time they travel that say here's where we are at each you know each of the different things that we do for every game here's what time they start and they don't start at uh, 230 245 250 even it's it's 252 it's you know 1258 and i think you learn pretty quickly your expect the expectation is not that you're there at the exact time that it says it starts because if you get there even a couple minutes early, you're late. Um, but he starts, you know, if it's 12 o'clock and cam rising isn't on the bus, but the bus is supposed to leave the hotel at 12 o'clock, he can find his own way to the stadium. They'll leave. So, um, that's, that's the, the, probably the consistency. And then, I mean, maybe that leads me into the second one that comes to mind, uh, and it's accountability mm. and, both personally, which I think I talked about a little bit in that first one, but uh, holding people accountable for what they're expected to do. 
Um, I've used this in my own business. You know, if I know that I'm responsible to get something done, I better get it done because the example, if you're a business owner, starts with you and you can't ask your, your people around you, your team, to take accountability as seriously as you need them to if, you know, you have a project that's due at five o'clock tomorrow and you tell everybody at five o'clock, I need another day. Um, and I see that in, in Kyle's football world. He gives everybody a fair chance. I, I do know that about him. In fact, I think something that we all learned from my dad was he was he was a big proponent of giving the underdog a hand up. And he was very fair. But I think maybe when it comes right down to it, a gifted athlete might have been given uh, a, a fair chance to succeed. But maybe that underdog was given uh, a couple extra pushes that he didn't feel like he needed to give to somebody else. Um, but at the end of the day, they were all accountable for getting it done at the best, at the highest level possible. And uh, I don't know if this fits into accountability or consistency, but I never saw either one of them make a decision based on uh, personal, emotional preference or relationship. I should say, you know, a lot of, a lot of times, probably at the lower levels, more than at the college and, and NFL levels, the players that play, uh, there are some politics that play into that. You know, how does how does the personal relationship between the coach and the player work? And I don't think that has ever really played into Kyle or or my dad's world. You know, the the best person always was given the opportunity to to start, but everybody was given the opportunity to learn to earn that opportunity. Does that make sense? Um, so a player can come in as a five star player, and the kid that comes in that was not even rated walked on is really going to be given an equal, equal chance and maybe even a couple of extra pushes to give him a chance to, you know, succeed. Um, but that underdog thing, it's, yeah, I don't know how much it plays into business, but I think we all have a little bit of a soft spot for the underdog, not those necessarily in, you know, that work in my businesses or that, that are part of the Utah football program, but, you know, you see a lot of the people that Kyle uh, wants to take care of, and uh, you can tell that, that he's got a good heart. And I think that really does come from my dad. You know, if there was somebody that was consistently down on their luck, he always did what he could to, you know, give them a lift up with nothing to benefit personally. You know, it's these are mostly people that the only benefit would be, you know, the happiness that you get from from helping them beyond whatever challenges they have, whether it's, uh, you know, mental disabilities. And you, you definitely see a lot of that. Kyle, I think he got his degree in uh, special education. Mm -hmm. He has a real soft spot in his heart for those that have those challenges. And so, yeah, I think that extends all the way through just personal life. And so I love that. What other lessons came to mind? I mean, consistency and those clear expectations, accountability, uh, both personal and those around him. And, I think the the third one, um, it's in a position like Kyle is in. Uh, he's you know he's basically the CEO of a I don't know what the football program uh, generates as far as revenue. It's you know I don't know sixty seventy million dollars for the athletic program. That's a pretty big business. So he's the CEO of a of a an organization that has those big responsibilities. And a lot of times when you see a CEO 
or a head football coach uh, doing their job. Uh, and, and I've been through this myself where there's more work to do than we have hours in the day. You can become consumed with that and you can lose that balance in life. Mm. And, you know, so many people become workaholics and before they know it, the fallout from that is your family wasn't taken care of and, and your close friendships weren't taken care of. And beyond work, you really don't have a place where you're a, a major factor if you let that happen. And I think some of that is, you know, because there's just so much that needs to be done that you feel like you don't have time for those other things that don't generate that revenue that you're responsible for. But I think Kyle has, I, I, I don't know if he learned this from my dad or if he learned it from, you know, the, the coaching profession where if you don't make it a point to have that balance, you're either going to become all football and that's who you are. Um, or you're not going to succeed because you're going to go too balanced on the other side. Like I don't want to put in these hours because my, I'd rather spend time with my wife, my kids finding that balance is tough. Um, and there are times I, I think I look back to my dad and, and when he was coaching in the NFL, because those were the, he started coaching with the Rams when I was going into seventh grade. Mm. And that's when sports became interesting, right? You know, it's no longer just the flag football games or, you know, the, when you were really young, you had kids probably playing soccer, you know, he, he, he didn't have as much time to go to those things probably as he would have liked to. And I don't actually have a whole lot of memories of those, but I do remember when it was football season for me, it was football season for him. And so my expectation was he probably wouldn't see many of my games. Um, but I knew that if he could, he would. And once in a while, he'd show up and he'd watch practice or they'd, they would have a bye week and he would be there to watch the games. And that went all the way from you know, my, my uh, seventh grade year through high school. But we understood that he gave us every ounce of energy that, that the team and the other coaches and the staff could still function the way they needed to if he gave us that time be very easy to stay that extra hour instead of coming home and making it to watch the tail end of a practice um but then I, I where I really saw that balance was when he did have more time he, he didn't miss a track meet I mean I don't know how fun it is to come and watch a high school track meet when uh, you know the events that I was in you know all totaled for a four-hour day in the stands he might see me for four minutes um, but he was there he was there when he could be and I see that with Kyle and you know my dad was an assistant football coach he wasn't he wasn't the guy that had everybody from athletic administration to the players to the coaches to the the rest of that staff looking up to him as the you know what do we do next um, so I, I think that's probably one of the most impressive things that I've seen is he's still been able to maintain that balance. That's great. Hey, I appreciate your time. I'll let you go. I, I know that you mentioned you don't want this to be about you or football, but um, anything else you want to tell us about your work or you or anything? We had an idea that, you know, what if we turned this game pickleball that everybody in the country is going crazy for, probably in the world. I know it's the fastest growing sport in the country and change it, change some rules so that it could be played on grass and 
what a fun game this would be at the beach. Sandy Pickle, that's the game's name. Uh, we got those in like early, early September and we'll be sold out by Christmas. Um, you know, we got them in time for a great season. Just placed another order. So, yeah, if you play pickleball, give uh, Sandy Pickle a look. You bet. Thank you. Gotta have the championship hat showing. So awesome. And I actually wore Chiefs um, instead of Utah gear so I could represent my brother. So I've got Tyler Whittingham with me, the son of Coach Kyle Whittingham. If you looked back on all the lessons you learned from Coach Kyle while he was raising you that also were taught to his team, which ones are the very top lessons that translated into work life? I have gleaned from my dad through observation, not through him deliberately sitting me down and saying, here's some instruction that I want to provide you. Um, but through leading by his example. So the first thing is that he, he um, would always find a way and not an excuse. The second thing is that he says that it's always about the team. It's all about the team. It's not about yourself. And then the third is that you got to respect the process. Tell me how you could apply those to things like customers, employees, and work life. So with those things, uh, I'm personally an entrepreneur here to help you guys and hopefully provide some insight uh, that has helped me get to uh, the place that I am now. Not saying that's a, a good place or anything, but I'm thoroughly enjoying it, and I've been able to have some some personal successes. And the the first thing that I mentioned about finding a way, not an excuse, mm. uh, that's applied to me not necessarily just in business, uh, but really for throughout um, many different activities that I've had over the years where I was put into a leadership role. Um, it's so easy to just sit back and, and say, uh, you know what, there's too much going on or this is against us and we can't do this because of that. And there's always going to be just a majority of the people that accept the failure as it is and will not even procure a way to, to try and make it happen and try and, and win or get the ball in the end zone or get points on the scoreboard. Um, so with that mindset, um, it, it really changes the way that your brain thinks. Instead of just saying, oh, I'm in this situation, I'm going to dismiss it because it's impossible. Uh, it really gets you into critical thinking mode if you're mm. in your business and like, let's say you, you got some mixed up invoicing or you got some marketing issues or you got some PR issues. Uh, there's, there's so many ways that you could just throw up your hands and say, this is not, uh, this is not something that I can do. And just face your problems and attack your problems and work through them, solve them, move the ball down the field. When we all gang up on it or when, when the right people attack that problem and they solve it and it puts the business in a better place, uh, then we call that moving the ball down the field. And uh, that comes from finding a way, not an excuse. Mm. I guess being an entrepreneur in general, because um, there's one thing that stood out to me that my dad said. He goes, my, bus my business wasn't doing too great. And I had a partner and we were just like making little, we we're, were profitable, but we were just like a little bit of profit every month. And he was like, well, you guys have been doing this for a while. How come you're not just killing it? And I said, man, I don't know. Why aren't we? And I really was perplexed at that point because obviously if you know the solution to like just making tons of money, then you'd turn on the switch and make it happen. Um, but I was just trying, my, me and my partner were trying and he goes, well, maybe this entrepreneur stuff isn't for you. Maybe you should just get a regular job. And from that, 
was from that moment that I knew I was like, I will never ever be anything but an entrepreneur. Um, and, and the way to, to do that, because my, my alternative was, oh, I can go work for somebody else or I can keep being an entrepreneur. And sure, like we weren't making tons of money at the time, but it was still more than I would make at like most other jobs where I would just go apply. And, and so mm. in the finding a way, not an excuse, it's, it was just a constant every single day, uh, trial and error, trying different things, trying to find a way to make money. Uh, not making excuses, saying like, oh, I can't go sit in front of my computer today because I'm too tired and my wrists hurt or, or something like that. Um, it, it's really like, uh, you know, you, you wake up in the morning and you have the opportunity to either take action and make progress in your business or find excuses. Yeah. And I've broken my, my own business down into seasons because it is very difficult. Like you, you're going into business and every single day is can become monotonous and you're like well what's the game what's practice where how do i get pumped if this if this was just sports it would be easy because then you know the the rose bowl would be on the calendar and everybody could get excited for that but you know may, maybe you are getting ready for the christmas season with your business or there's a big conference that you're prepping for and it's practice going up to it but then the conference itself is the game uh and you just gotta find a way to make things happen. So all about the players. Uh, to me, that applies. I started uh, my entrepreneur career um, as in the advertising agency world. And so in the agency world, there's the agency and there's the client. And, and you have the agency-client relationship. Uh, and, and an agency is only as good as their best client or their collective sum of all of their clients. No matter how good you are at a market, at, no matter how good you are as a marketer, uh, if you don't have good clients with good brands, good products that can sell and fulfill and do customer service, uh, pay their bills on time, make money, ha have the funding to be able to buy more product in, in advance of like a, a holiday season, because all that takes significant investments. Um, and, and really, like if you're thinking, oh, I'm, I'm this great marketer, I want to run multi-million multi dollar marketing campaigns, which is what I thought that I, I want. Like I always viewed myself as like, oh, I'm an NFL level marketer. Um, but if, if I am, then why am I not like spending this much and why am I not advertising this much? The, the amount that we're advertising is, is such a small amount and I would look at it and it's because it's the clients. The clients that we were working with were smaller people and they were not even able to take me and my business up to the level that we wanted to be. And so as a coach, it's the exact same way. You can stand on the sideline and call the perfect play, uh, have everybody in the perfect position before the snap, but if you don't have the right players, meaning uh, bigger, faster, stronger, more athletic than the opponent, then you're just gonna get slapped around and not even be able to <laughs> make any progress no, how, no matter how good your strategy is. Yeah. Okay, so respect the process. That is the third item. Um, and this is going to be for primarily the people who are building a business that they don't think might have a value. Uh, they're just starting and they're hopeful that it will become something someday. Um, respecting the process just in the simplest forms means that there's a set of... Set of actions that will lead you to the highest probability of success. Um, in football, 
it's really easy. Athletics is very easy. Uh, you got to work out, you got to eat right, you got to sleep right, and you got to practice. Uh, in business, it's a little bit tougher uh, because you maybe you're starting your own business and uh, as an entrepreneur, that's most definitely what you're doing. And if you're not an entrepreneur, if you're working within a larger organization, um, then it's, you know, maybe you guys are building something brand new together and there's not a right way to, uh, to do things yet. But regarding the process, uh, you, whether you're making it up as you go along or following some pre-dictated process, uh, the, 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 the process itself is the actions that do lead to higher probabilities of success. So if you can isolate those within your business and say, hey, okay, that this is extremely important, this, this, this. These are like the four or five pillars of our business. And no matter what happens, like we don't let these things slip. Whether it's we get invoices out on time, we fulfill our product on time, we always respond to customer complaints within X amount of time. Like there's a certain process that you have to follow uh, that will lead to uh, greater success. And as you're, you're growing the business, um, my, my first real business that actually got any traction, I didn't think had any value. Um, I had a partner in it and as we built it together, we made revenue and he, 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 he encouraged us that we stick to a process even more than I wanted to stick to a process. He was a very methodical man and he, through his process, uh, he made us built to sell. If everybody's, yeah. anybody's ever heard of the book, Built to Sell, we, we built ourselves to sell. And he actually ended up, uh, after we worked together for a couple of years, the business turned into something that he wanted more than I did. Uh, and so he offered to purchase my shares of the business from me. And the only way that was possible um, was because we stuck to the process and had all the numbers um, leading up to that point that we could pull that data and say, okay, well, the business is worth X. And because we stuck to that process, it was beneficial to me uh, in the sale of the business. It was beneficial to him in the acquisition of the entirety of the business. And every single person in that organization benefited from us having stuck to the process. And then everybody flourished afterwards. I was able to go and, and start a new business of my own, uh, very similar but slightly different uh, to the previous one. He's been able to continue the growth of, of that business that uh, he took on in its entirety and he's stuck to the process. And really any, any business that I've had and, or been a part of that has been successful has processes and they're adhered to uh, to the point where a penalty flag will be thrown if something is not, if, if a process is skipped and everything will be stopped and you'll be set back and you'll have to re restart the play. And really breaking the process is like committing a penalty and it will set you back and make you have to, uh, depending on your industry, if, if you lose money on that particular deal, then you have to make twice as much to even get back to where you were. Uh, if it's more of a time thing, then you lost weeks or months of time preparing for something because you missed this one little bit in the process. Uh, so respecting the process and following it, um, as long as you know you make sure the process is something that, that will give you the highest probability of success. You don't just have arbitrary processes for the sake of, of just having action and having motion, showing up to practice and running laps because that's what a football team does. Uh, we don't, when I'm talking about busy work, I'm talking about truly pivotal, 
crucial cogs in each business that is required to operate. And family, it's the exact same thing. You know, the, whether you're a traditional husband-wife type family or a non-traditional family, each member will have their role, their skill, the different things that they're good at. And as long as everybody's taking care of their part of the process, that's what makes the team function. Yeah. A bonus lesson from my dad that he taught me without ever even knowing it um, is about consistency. I thought about it this morning. I, I, did, I woke up at freaking 4 a.m. this morning. And I was like, I got to do, because my day happens weird. Like, there's two points in my day. One is from like 8 a.m. to noon, and then is like 6 p.m. to 10 p.m. So those are like the, the most internet traffic times of day. And so I was like, I got to get in at 4 a.m. And my alarm went off. And I was like, no, I do not want to get out of bed. And I was like, you know who would get out of bed? Yeah. He's been a coach for a long time, uh, thousands and thousands of days, uh, almost 30 years now times 365. And the life of a football coach starts pretty early. Uh, I remember his alarm going off at 5.30 every single morning, uh, pretty much my entire childhood. Every day that I lived with them, I would hear the floor start to creak and then that door shut at about 535. And I would say, well, it only takes you 12 minutes to get to your office at that time. Why, like, why do you leave? Uh, why do you leave? Because he didn't have his first meeting until 630. He's like, I was like, why do you leave so early? He's like, well, I got to get there. Like, if I'm late, I've never been late. He literally has never been late. Mm. Um, he's... He's never missed a day of work. He, uh, it's funny, he'll, he tells these stories where he's sick and he goes to work sick. And he's just like, this is before COVID and like this is more acceptable back then. But he uh, would be in film with his, his fellow coaches and have a garbage can. He'd be throwing up in the garbage can during their meeting so he wouldn't have to miss the meeting <laughs> and, like that's the environment that i grew up in and um so when i <clears throat> when i started my company and had all my guys and we were like oh, okay what time do we start the day to me it didn't really matter because i i knew that um you gotta wake up early to get stuff done mm -hmm. if you really want something then you can make it happen because I saw my dad thousands, thousands of times in a row um, be consistent, fulfill his duties that he committed to, and it generated the result that it did. And we've been fortunate, he's been fortunate, and, and there's a lot of good things that came from that. But the underlying principle there is the consistency. So um, even if you're losing, uh, whew, whew, even if you're losing and it's tough to show up, you just gotta keep showing up. And if you keep showing up, then that's when the good things happen. So uh, without being even able to say any of that, <laughs> I said it and that's how I feel. So. I'm very grateful. Tyler, I'm really grateful that you would share that with us. It's inspiring. Uh, my day tomorrow will go differently than it did yesterday because of that. I appreciate your vulnerability. Uh, I'd love you to just 
to close, if you had one piece of advice in any work setting for anybody, how would you suggest they go about creating a bold breakthrough in their work? Well, another thing that my dad has said to me uh, in over the years is that you can do anything you want. You can become whoever you want uh, as long as you work hard enough at that thing. Whatever you, whatever you work hard enough at, the most hard at, that is the thing that you will be able to accomplish. Um, so, summarizing everything, if you need to do something and you have to accomplish that and you have goals, then simply um, wanting that to happen and then committing yourself, the actions, following the process, uh, surrounding yourself with the right people, being consistent, all of that will then take you to uh, the success and lead you to the success that you're looking for through action. Thank you, Coach Whittingham and the Whittinghams for all that you've taught us a community. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. And if you enjoyed it, please share this episode with a friend that needs a breakthrough. Post this on social media and add my website, tag my YouTube page, or just text markspencercook.com to a friend or message that link on Instagram right now. Also, make sure to subscribe on my site at markspencercook.com to stay up to date on all the latest advice on how to unstick priorities to create breakthroughs. I'm so grateful that you listened today. And remember, you have people rooting for you. They love you and want you to make your breakthrough. That includes us too. Take the first step. Now, you know what time it is. It's time to go create a breakthrough for your work in life. And we'll see you there. Sean Covey. Britt Covey, how would you answer this question? Robbie Kalin, how would you say the Coach Witt taught you lessons for work and life? Tony Bergstrom, how would you say Coach Witt taught you about work and life? Tom Hackett, how would you say that Coach Whittingham taught you about work and life? Jason Whittingham, how would you say that Coach Whittingham taught you about work and life? Brady Whittingham, Kyle's brother, how would you say that he taught you about work and life? Tyler Whittingham, Coach Whittingham's son, how would you say that Coach Whittingham taught you about work and life? <laughs>